Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. In our ongoing study of the book of Daniel, today we find ourselves in chapter 12 and verses 5 to 7. Class teacher Doug Brady has prepared a deep study of these four verses, and we, the members of the Believer's Bible class, are deeply moved by the meanings of this short passage. Remember that this is prophetic teaching from God through Daniel and aimed directly at us. The Believer's Bible class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We would love to meet and greet you if you're able to visit our class when you're in the area. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin this lesson in Daniel chapter 12. Here now is our longtime teacher and friend, Doug Brady. But we're studying the book of Daniel. The last time we met, we looked at a passage which was difficult to understand. And you remember the Lord instructed Daniel to conceal what was written in that passage. And that, but that concealing would not last forever. When three events came together in a confluence or a vortex of those three events, it would start to become clear. It would be like the mist would rise. Does anybody remember any of those three events? Does anybody remember any of those three events? Number one, the end of time, as time grows to an end. Now, you need to think about this. It's important. Well, wait, that's not going to be the end. Who is this prophecy written to? The Jews. At the end of time, whose dispensation is going to be finished? The Jews. This is about the Jews. And so at the end of the 70th week of Daniel, talked about in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, that's the end of time Gabriel is talking about here. Number two, there's going to be a searching, an intense searching for information about scriptural promises. People are going to be searching the scriptures back and forth, putting together. Could Daniel have done that? No, he didn't have first Thessalonians. He didn't have Matthew or second Thessalonians. He didn't have the revelation. He didn't know any of that stuff. You've got all of that stuff. In addition, there's going to be all kinds of other information that's going to be coming out in the third event. That is an accumulation of huge amounts of knowledge, areas of archaeology, areas of science, linguistics, paleontology, all these things. It's coming out, and as this accumulation of huge amounts of knowledge is coupled with the ability to discern and understand the proper correlation with God's Word and these other fields of learning, it's going to unconceal all of these things. There's going to be this clarity. Have you ever seen in a movie or something, and you see the first scene of it, and it's all blurry, and you can't really see it, and slowly it starts to come into focus? That's what this is going to be like. Now, that turning on the focus won't start until these three things come together. But I am convinced we are in the last times. I am convinced people are searching the Scriptures more than they ever have before. And this knowledge is expanding. We've got so much knowledge, most of us know such a small amount on it. But you find this over here, and you've got to realize, I've got to take that over here and put it with this, and this over here, and I put And then this is happening. Now, that is for the most part, the end of the vision. Because now it's going to go back to the angelic beings, and there's going to be some questions about what's going on and what is meant to happen. Today we're going to start with the first question, but before we do, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, first of all, let me thank you once again for this wonderful answer of prayer. You know, there were a number of people who had doubts 
whether you'd really do that. But we know the heart of those justices are like channels of water in your hand, and you can turn it whichever way you wish. And you'll turn it in accordance with your plan. But I thank you that you have saved the life of so many babies that this 62 million we've killed will drop precipitously. There's something else, Father, that I want to pray about in that regard. There are 12 states in our union who have already passed abortion bills to allow abortions to occur in their state. Some of them, even after the child has been born. Father, I pray that you bring such judgment against those states like New York and Massachusetts and New Jersey and Illinois and Washington and Oregon and California and that you will raise up the pastors in this country to say that's the reason because they're killing their babies. They're violating God's law and that's the reason judgment is coming. And if we need to have global warming to flood out those states, then let's go ahead and do it. But whatever it is in your judgment, I pray that you will bring it soon. So that, and that we won't be fearful of standing up and saying, this is the reason. Now, Father, as we seek to understand these next three verses, I pray that you have your Holy Spirit reveal it to us today. I pray that we will allow him to speak with power to our hearts and that we will understand what it is that you're trying to say to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on the other bank of the river. Now, let's talk about this just a minute. You're in the last chapter, the last part. Why in the world does he say, I, Daniel? Why would he do that? I mean, he's been Daniel all the way through it. Because these progressives and these liberals, for example, Truett Theological Seminary, where's that located? Waco, Texas, at my sister's old alma mater. They want to say, Daniel didn't write this book, or he didn't write that much of it. And these latter parts, especially these prophetical parts, they're just historic revisions as they go back and pretend that they are writing prophecy when really they're writing history. And they're pseudepigraphists is the name. In other words, false writers. And they're not really Daniel. Daniel says, no, this is me. I, Daniel, am saying this. And then who quotes him to say that he is Daniel writing it? Jesus, the Son of God. Can we find a better authority than Jesus, the Son of God? No. And so that's if you ever want to look that up, you can see it in Matthew 24, 15 through 16. That's the first thing. So the second thing I want you to look at is these next two verbs, looked and behold. Now, that seems redundant to me when I first time I read it. Why would he do that? But when I look at these Hebrew words, and I believe I put them in your notes for you so you can look at them, looked is the idea of perceiving, seeing and understanding. And what's happened is, you remember, Daniel was talking to an angelic being. Now, some people want to say, no, he wasn't talking to an angelic being, he was talking to Jesus. Uh, others of us want to say, no, it's talking to an angelic being. We'll talk about that in a minute. But two other guys show up. Daniel says first, look, he's seeing, oh, these are angelic beings, and it's, behold, is like, look at this. Look what's happening here. There's two more now. What's going on? Now, they are standing on the sides of the river. One is on the west bank, and one is on the east bank. So, where was the third guy? He's standing on the water. Or he may be right above the water. We'll talk about that in just a second. But I want you to see this and understand what's going on now. Now, consider again... Who is this other third angel? If it had said the angel of the Lord, who would that have been? Okay. But it doesn't say the angel of the Lord. See, there's three angels. One's on that side, one's on this side, and then one's right in the middle. Now we're talking about the guy in the middle. Now, this is intentionally kind of uh, out of focus because that's the way they wanted to do it. You know, you look at an angel, you might get in trouble. I didn't want to hurt anybody's eyes or anything. But... 
Now look at what it says in Daniel 10, 5 and 6. I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz, and his body also was like burl, and his face had the appearance of lightning, and his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and his feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now there are a number of scholars who would then take you to the first chapter of the book of the Revelation, and they would read the description of Jesus there, who is, it's clearly Jesus in the first chapter of the book of the Revelation, and you look at the description of Jesus there, and then you, and they match almost exactly. And so you say, oh, well, this is Jesus. Now wait, what do archangels look like? Could they look the same way? Well, how do we know whether this is Jesus or the archangel, Gabriel? Have we met Gabriel before in this book? Well, yes. Chapter 8, he's identified as Gabriel, the messenger who gives him the the vision of the ram and the goat. Chapter 9, when he gives him the vision of the 70 weeks, that's Gabriel. He's identified. So who is it here? I'm suggesting to you that it must be Gabriel because it cannot be Jesus Christ. Now, how can you say that, Doug? Just, you know, he looks like Jesus Christ. How can you say for certain that you know it's not Jesus Christ? Ah, let's look a little bit farther in chapter 10. And let's talk, I think, verse 12 and 13. Let's look at those. Then he, the angelic messenger, now this is in this vision, the same person that some people think of Jesus and other people not, Then he, this angelic messenger, said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this, and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Now, who is the prince of the king of Persia? That's a demonic being. It's not Satan. But it's one of his demonic beings. Is he alone? Well, at first you think he might be. You read further, but was withstanding me for 21 days. And then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia. Is there any angelic being in the universe who could ever stop Jesus Christ from getting where he wants to go immediately? Hold him up for 21 days. Is there ever a situation where Jesus is trying to do something and he can't do it and he has to have Michael come help him? No, this is not Jesus. This is Gabriel. But this angelic warfare goes on all the time. You just aren't seeing it, but it does. And this is what was happening. So here's Gabriel. He's standing there and he is doing this. Now, going back to verse 5 for just a second. It talks about these rivers. What rivers could it be? These are in this area, there's two great rivers. There's the rivers Euphrates and the rivers Tigris. Now, do you know what the word Mesopotamia means? The land between the rivers or between the rivers. These are these two. This is the Tigris. It runs mostly through Persia. Then there's this one, the Euphrates, it ran mostly through Babylon. If you were in Babylonia and in that culture and it said the great river, which river would it be? The Euphrates. If you were in Persia at the time and subject to Persia culture and it said the great river, which river would it be? The Tigris. And where is Daniel now in 536 BC? Persia. Therefore, it's the Tigris. Well, are you just guessing, Doug? Well, no, we don't guess about those kind of things. If you were to go back in Daniel chapter 10, verse 4, it says, On the 24th day of the first month, I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris. So that's where he is. And that's where he is going. And so do you know when these two rivers were first mentioned in the scriptures? Genesis. Where in Genesis? Chapter 2. Now wait, has the fall occurred in chapter 2? Well, let's look at this just a second. 
Let's read this. What does it say here? Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. It's coming into the garden of Eden to water it. And from there it was divided and became four rivers. And the name of the first one is the Pishon, and it flows around the whole land of Havilah, which is gold. Well, where there is gold, excuse me. Now, do we know where this river Pishon is now? No, I don't think so. And the next, and the, and the gold of that land is good, but Delium and the Onyx Stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and it flows around the whole land of Cush. Now, this is a little confusing for us because Cush many times is looked at in Africa, but we don't know where this river Gihon is. How can it be that these rivers are just gone? We can't find them anymore. They don't appear anywhere. Well, there was a little event called the flood, and it changed everything. You need to understand. I am convinced that there was a vapor canopy all around the earth, and that there was, it created a greenhouse effect all over the earth. Now, where would you get that kind of water? I wasn't prepared to give you slides on this, but let me try and explain it in a way it can be easily understood. If you were to look and you were to chart the earth as it starts to move towards the seacoast, and it comes a point where the water meets it, and the water, underneath the water, the land kind of slopes down gradually, and then all of a sudden it drops off into the deep part of the sea. There's this, and what am I trying to say? It's, what's this water that's right next to the coast? It's a coastal, I can't think of the technical term for it. But anyway, if you were to take th that water out and only leave the water in the deep part of the ocean, and you were to vaporize all of that water in the ocean that you took out from that top layer, and then put it around the earth, it would just form a perfect vapor canopy. What would happen? It would cause the earth's atmosphere to be 10 times the air pressure that would normally be. That means there's 10 times more oxygen in the air. It would block out cosmic radiation. Now, I, I've read a, a doctrinal thesis out of Dallas Theological Seminary written by a guy named Jody Dillo, which uh, Henry Morris Sr., uh, was on the committee. And it talks about these kind. If you had a really large group of animals, I mean animals that are really large, like say a brontosaurus, and it's used to breathing air that's 10 times more oxygenated than the air we breathe today, and all of a sudden you expect them to go from that environment into uh, the environment we have right now, they wouldn't survive. Have we ever had anything like that before? With large animals like that just all dying out. I also read how they investigated with the laws of aerodynamics where they looked at the replica of pterodactyls and they were said, you know, really, these animals can fly. And so they went to some of the guys who had done those studies and they asked them, what if you increase the atmospheric pressure by an order of 10 times? Would that change anything? Well, let's look. Well, yeah, it would. They'd be able to fly. Oh. If you cover the earth with this vapor canopy, what does it do to cosmic radiation coming in from outside our solar system or outside the universe coming into the earth? It would be blocking it. What would effect would that have? Well, it could cause people to live 10 times longer than what they lived. You mean people would live to be 900 years? Oh. Oh. That's what it says in Genesis, isn't it? They lived that long. After the flood, the ages declined at an exponential decay curve because the cosmic radiation was causing a short... Anyway, the Tigris and the Euphrates were flowing in the Garden of Eden. And that's an amazing thing. God left those two rivers there, even though the others were changed by the flood. And I just wanted to point that out because I'm going to point something else out like that here in just a little while. Now, so Gabriel is one of these other angelic beings... And they're going to direct a question to Gabriel. Let's look at that passage in verse 5. And one said, now this is one of the two new guys, the two new angels. One said to the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? One said to the man dressed in linen, 
So one of these angels who was above the waters. Now, was above. I gave you that Hebrew word. I think it can mean stand. And I would probably translate it who's standing on the river, on the water. Can angelic or supernatural beings do that? And in fact, if you're holding hands with one of them, you could do it too. What do you mean holding hands with one? That's never happened, right? Oh, wait, what about Jesus and Peter? You know, so many people gripe about Peter. Man, you blew it. He was the only one to step across the gunwale and walk to Jesus. And he did great coming back. So don't be down on Peter. All right, was above the waters of the river. What's the question he's asking them? How long, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? Now, I want us to stop and think. Because in my business, it's all about questions. And you ask questions and you got to find the answers. But why do you ask a question? There's three reasons why you might ask a question. Number one. You don't know the answer, and you want to know the answer. Number two, you know the answer, but you want to see if the person you're asking knows the answer. Or number three, you want, you're not worried about what you know. You know the guy you're asking knows the answer. You know the answer, but you want to have the other people who are there to hear the answer from that. Let me give you an example. You know, if I was in a room... And I had Vera and Julie in there, and I was in there, and Jesus showed up. Jesus, which is really the better translation, the King James or the New American Standard? I would want them to hear that answer, see, so they could know. It's that, those are the three reasons for, you know, because I'm driving home with her, I didn't say what the answer would be. But you notice, those are the three reasons you ask questions. And so you need to see that. Now, What are the reasons here? Well, one of the things we do know is angels don't know everything. There's a lot of things that only God knows. He doesn't tell the angels. The angels are constantly watching us because they never really understood grace. You see, they understood judgment when the angels sinned. That was it. But they never understood grace. And now they're learning grace by watching us. So I think that angel for the first part wants to know. But I think he also wants Daniel to hear the answer to the question. So that's the reason that this question is being asked. You know, how often do you have one angel asking another angel a question that's recorded in the scriptures? I can't think of any other time. You know, you have human beings asking angels or asking God questions, but you don't have one angel asking another one. And here they are doing that. Now, he's asking about how long the wonders may be. Let's see, go back. These wonders. If you look in your, in your notes, this Hebrew word is pele. And it can mean, wonders to me has a strong positive connotation. It's something that's great, wonderful. That's not necessarily what this word means. This word means extraordinary or extraordinary are hard to understand things. It can mean that. Or it can mean the God's acts of judgment and redemption. God's acts of judgment and redemption. And I think it's talking about both of those meanings as it's using this word wonders. But the wonders he's talking about is not necessarily good. In fact, the judgment it's talking about, if you read Revelation, it's not good at all. Well, it's horrible what it's talking about, but it's justice finally delivered. And so it's good in that respect. We need justice. Even if some of us are a little, or most of us are a little weak-hearted about it, we need justice. And Jesus is going to deliver justice. Some of us think it's been too long, but actually it's right on time. So that's these wonders. Now, how long? So, does Gabriel know the answer to that question? That's the, the next thing we want to know. Does he know? And the answer is yes, because he was sent to tell Daniel. So let's look at this for just a second in verse 7. I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven 
and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finished shattering the power of the holy people, all these events would be completed. Now let's break that down for just a second. What is this guy doing? First thing he's doing is he's making an oath. Now, if you were to look at this in the Hebrew, they would have a way of saying, well, he raised his hands and both went up. It would be the same description of Moses when Aaron and Hur were with him on the hill and Joshua was fighting in the valley against our favorite, the Amalekites. And he raised both hands, came up at the same time. This is indicating the right hand comes up first and then he raised his left hand. So it's a series like that. Now, what's the point here? I want you to see this. When you made an oath, you know, today, if you make an oath, you put your hand on the Bible or you put your hand over your heart. That's the way we do it. Now, there's a question, President, right before Donald Trump, what his hand was on. If it was on a Koran, well, then it's a different kind of oath. But the fact is, in those days, they raised their right hand. And that was the sign of the oath. Are you really sure of that, Doug? Yes. In Genesis chapter 14, verse 22, And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. What he's saying was, you know, the kings uh, came from Mesopotamia and they took over Sodom and Gomorrah and wiped them out, took all their possessions and left. Abraham went after them because they got lot. And he defeated all of those five kings from the Mesopotamia and took everything back. And the king of Sodom came out and said, I tell you what, please just give me my people. The people belonged to Abram. He captured them. They became slaves when they were captured by the kings of Mesopotamia. They now were his slaves. He said, just give me my people. You can keep everything else. Did Abram, Abraham know about the sin of Sodom? Absolutely he did. And he knew how wicked it was. And he knew what was going on down there. And he raised his hand in oath. He says, not only am I going to give your people back, I'm going to give you every single thing. I don't want anybody to say that Sodom made me rich. Ooh, does that have current day application? What if the ACLU wanted to come and hire me and they said, we're going to pay you a bunch of money to handle this case for us? I don't want the ACLU making me rich. Not at all. What if Antifa came to you, Chris, and said, we want to make you uh, over in Rockwall, we want to make you the county judge. What do you say? You want Antifa to back you into that? He's saying, not a chance. How could you even think that I would even consider that, Doug? (laughs) Chris is usually a little more vitriolic than that, but that's okay. Look again at an example in Deuteronomy 32. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and I who give life. Now, who's talking here? The Lord God is. And I have wounded and it is I who heal. There is no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and I say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold of justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. He's got a lot of repaying to do today, doesn't he? But that's not, the fact is, even God raises his right hand and swears by himself. Now in this verse, it's in effect, Gabriel said, I'm double swearing that this is what's going to happen. I'm double swearing. And that's why he lifts. And what is his answer here? Swore by him that it would be a time, times, and half a time. Now, I've determined that there's somebody who ought to answer some questions here today. And we'll see how well they do, Don. <laughs> how many years is a time, time, half a time? How many months is it? How many days is it? Very good. That's pretty good to come out with that. I will tell you, I didn't talk to her about it ahead of time. But I got one more question for you. How long did God judge the kingdom of Israel for worshiping Baal when Elijah went to him and said, it won't rain again until I say? How long? Three and a half years. Do you begin to see maybe there's a correlation here? In both sides, he's judging Israel. You know, I think we ought to maybe study something about that guy, Elijah. In fact, that's who we're studying next. It'd be about six lessons on Elijah. Jerry says, no way. 
that you could do that in six. But we will see. But it's a time, times, and a half a time. Now, this word is really important to look at. Does anybody know, Julie, do you know what this Hebrew word is? A time? Moed. You see, she's, she's learning. Moed. Where do you see that word before? How about go back to Genesis chapter 1 this time? Genesis chapter 1. You didn't ever think about this. Genesis chapter 1 verse 14 says this. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day and the night. And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and for years. Now, this is day 4. He's creating the lights, sun, moon, stars, and he says they're to be for signs and seasons for days and years. Now you may think, well, okay, three and a half years, so that word years must be moed? No. You think, well, what about that word translated signs? Nope. Seasons. A period of time, a point of time, we got to understand that this word means an appointed place, an appointed time. An appointed meeting. This is when I want to meet with you, is what he is saying. At the very first, he's setting up these things so that you can see these changes in time. They're important to me. I want you to meet with me. A little later, he became even more specific. In Leviticus chapter 23, I want you to see that. Starting in verse 1, And the Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say them, The Lord's appointed times. What's that Hebrew word? Moed. Moed. Which you shall proclaim as my holy convocations. My appointed times are these. For six days work will be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not work, do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. So the first Moed he sets up there is the Sabbath. Second, these are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim the times appointed for them. Now, I obviously didn't put the whole rest of the chapter here, but he sets out the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths. All of these events he sends as my appointed times. Now, this is very important for us to see. My appointed times. What is he telling Israel they should do on those times? Meet with him. It's a holy convocation. Okay? And does he tell them as to each of these things what you're to do and not do? Yes, he does. Now, why does he want them killing a Passover lamb? Because what happened in Passover in 33 AD? The real lamb died. Now, on that year, between the Passover and the day of first fruits, that Sunday, there were three days. Three days, three nights. That's the feast that year of unleavened bread. What are you doing on the feast of unleavened bread? What are you celebrating? You're eliminating the sin from the people. That's what he's meeting with you about. What was Jesus doing for those three days? Paying for the sin. For example, one of the things he did is he took some of his blood and he took it up to heaven into the place in heaven where the heavenly tabernacle was, where the mercy seat, and he sprinkled it on there. Why did he have the right to do that? Because he's our great high priest. And the high priest paid for the sins and he sprinkled the blood on the atonement seat. And does it ever have to be done again? So as a sign of that, what did he do? Rip that curtain in the Holy of Holies. No longer. The Day of Atonement is no longer needed. Not anymore. Because I paid for those sins. Now, you look back at our verse in chapter 12, verse 7. What is he doing? He's saying, I'm making provision to my people. I have a place prepared in the wilderness where if you can get there, I will keep you safe. Even as you're going there, I will keep you safe. I will meet with you because I have plans for you to regenerate you, take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh that will love me and will serve me. And the Jews that go there are going to be the remnant that he's going to save. And that he will take 
into the millennial kingdom. And I want you to see that. Now, I left out, if you look in the notes, you will see a number of passages where it talks about the things that Don had told us. That a time, a time, and a half a times, which is spoken of in Daniel 7.25 and Revelation 12.14. You will see the 42 months in Revelation 11.2 and uh, 13.5. You will also see the 12,000... Uh, 1260 days in Revelation 12:6 and Revelation 11:3, and it will confirm that everything Dawn told us was right. She was right on the money. Now, what does Gabriel say is going to happen during that three and a half years? What is he saying? Is he saying that Israel will be shattered? Power of Israel will be shattered. A lot of people think Israel will be shattered. Now, let's look at that real quickly, because I I want you to see this. This word shattered is the Hebrew word nefatz. Nefatz. You remember that I told you one of my Hebrew professors used to explain the PL stem by, he had a a wine glass, and if he dropped it, it would break. It It would hit the ground and shatter. And that would be call stem. But if he took it and he threw it down there, it would be dashed to pieces. And that would be PL, meaning it was intensive and intentional. Not an accident, but intentional. That was the word he used, was nefatz. And if you look at it, you'll see it can mean shatter or break in the standard stem, which is ka, but in PL it says to dash to pieces. That's the concept here of PL. I want you to understand. So he's saying something is going to be broken Something is going to be uh, shattered, and that shattering is going to be intensive, and it's going to be intentional. Who's going to be doing it? The Most High God is going to be doing it to His people. Why is He doing this? For two reasons. And I want you to see those in just a second. Look at this word, power. This is difficult to get the right translation on this. The word power is a translation of the Hebrew word yod. It's a little two-letter word, yod. And it means a hand or it means strength. It means strength on a figurative basis. It can mean part of the land also in a metaphysical or physical. And this is hard to understand if you don't know the Hebrew culture well. So what really is being shattered? What's being shattered is the rebellion of his people, the rebellion of the people. At the end of the three and a half years, God's chosen people will be turned back to him, and those that did not turn will be purged. Purged is a harsh word, but when God uses it, it's just. Look at Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. He says, Awake, O sword. Now, if I was listening to this and he's saying, Awake, O sword, I don't think I would like what I'm going to hear. Listen, we don't need any swords awakening. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. When you see that name, Lord of hosts, what does that mean? That's the commander of the armies of God. That's the warrior name for our Lord, the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep that the sheep might be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones, and I will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off and perish. Now, we've studied this word cut off before in Daniel chapter 9. What does it mean? Death. Killed. Eliminated. But the third will be left in it, and I will bring the third part through the fire, and I will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is refined, and they will call my name. And I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people, and they will say, Yahweh is my God. This final week of distress is the judgment for cutting off the Messiah. I will cut them off because they cut off my Messiah, first thing. Does the Jewish nation ever have to pay for killing the Messiah? Yes, they will. Second thing, though, what does it mean for not the two-thirds that are going to be cut off, but the third that's going to remain? They're going to be purged, cleansed, and tested. Do you know in the time both of Daniel and the time of Zechariah and the time of John, 
how they purified silver or gold. They would put it in a furnace, and they would turn it up, but they wouldn't turn it up anywhere near all the way. Turn it up just a certain way, and certain dross would start to float up to the top, as you, and they'd scoop it, skim it off, and get rid of it. Then they'd turn the heat up a little more. And certain other type of dross or impurities would then burn off, and they would skim it. If you turned it all the way up at the first, you wouldn't get what you got at the first. Still be in there. And they'd keep doing this series of increasing the heat, skimming the dross, until what? They could look down in that silver and see a perfect reflection of the refiner's face. Like a mirror. In the gold or the silver, he could see that perfect. Then he knew he'd done it. It's pure. God is doing the same thing with these people. He keeps turning up the heat and skimming off the dross until he can look at them and see the reflection of himself in them. That's pretty cool, isn't it? But that's what he's doing, and that's what Zechariah says. Now, those are the two purposes that he's doing this to the nation of Israel. So let's take a final look before we finish at this final seven years of the current earth's history during the Jewish dispensation. There are many purposes for the tribulation that occurs during the final seven years when the wrath of God is, is poured out upon the cosmos, that is the world system. One of those purposes, of course, was to end the rebellion of Israel to their God. What is he going to break or shatter? Their stubborn self-will, which rejected their Messiah. That's going to be broken. They're going to recognize their Messiah. This purpose is what is being described to Daniel by Gabriel in chapter 12. The tribulation period will not end until this goal is accomplished. And there is a national regeneration of the chosen people. It's going to be a great day for God's people when he comes back and they're all there to believe in him. This means that the Lord will use to accomplish this purpose what's outlined in the book of Ezekiel. Let me read that to you in Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 33. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. Is there going to be an election? No. I will bring you out from the peoples. I will gather you from the lands where you are scattered. Which country has more Jews right now? Israel or the United States? United States. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered and with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out and I will bring you into the wilderness of peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face and I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God, and I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of covenant, and I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me, and I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel, and thus you shall know that I am the Lord. Think about this a minute. What is he comparing this event to? The Exodus. Did the people who were rebellious get to make it into the promised land? No. They were purged. Even Moses. Kind of strong language, isn't it? Wasn't Moses a great man? Yes, he was. But when you disobey God, there are consequences. I want you to think about something. I know a lady who recently had surgery. Beautiful woman. They found some cancer here on the side of her face. And they had to open it up and cut it out. Did it hurt? Yeah, it did. Did it, but they got the cancer out and it was gone. She's now cancer free. But will she always have the scar? Sin is exactly like that. You look at David when we studied him. And his grievous sin that he committed. Sins of betrayal to God and so many others. But did God forgive him? Yeah, he did. But were the scars still left as a reminder? Some of you bear scars that are left from your sin. God has forgiven you, and he doesn't remember your sin anymore. And he, and he moves it as far as the east is from the west, but that doesn't mean there won't be scars. And we need to understand that, that that's how God works. And I wanted you to see that. There's some final questions before we quit that I want you to see. First thing I want to tell you is this. God has chosen to use this means... Three and a half years to break the pride and self-sufficiency of his rebellious people, Israel, and to turn their hearts back to him. 
This is what he wants to do. Now, my first question is, does God only do that to Israel? No, he doesn't. Would he do that to a nation that he had a part in designing and creating? That is coming to us. Now, maybe if things turned around and we not only continue to pray that this abortion decision come to pass and be finalized in the law, and then that changes start happening in same-sex marriages and LGBTQ and some of these other abominations to the Lord God, things may change. But if they don't, judgment's coming for us. To whom much was given, much is expected. And America has fallen on her face when it comes to sin and morality. That's, and that doesn't even talk about the sex trafficking and the movement to make pedophilia an accepted sexual expression. You think, oh, nobody's going to. Yes, it's coming. Just you wait. You know, back in 1970, if you had told me the Supreme Court would allow same-sex marriage, I'd say, you're crazy. That never happened in our nation. Number two, would he do that to a church that has become proud and believes itself to be self-sufficient? A church that no longer strongly feeds its people. I mean, what is the purpose of the church? To feed the sheep. Is the purpose of the church... To be winning people to the Lord. And I don't mean church universal. I mean church local. No. The, the main purpose of the church is not to be winning people to the Lord. It's to be sending out people from the church to win people to the Lord. To bring them in where they can be fed, matured, and grown. So that they can send back out. What did Jesus say in Matthew 28? He said... Go you therefore and make disciples of all people. What does it mean to make disciples? There's three things. Winning them, building them, and sending them. That's what the church is to be about. Are the churches in our nation doing that? Should we pray that our church do that? Do we want to be self-sufficient and proud? You know, there was a time when our church was awfully proud. And we stood up and we said, and I... Can't believe that, yeah, I said these things too. We are the lead church in the Southern Baptist. We are the bell cow church of the Southern Baptist Convention. What does that mean? Wherever we go, the rest of them all follow. We are the flagship church of the Southern Baptist. We are larger than any other church in the world. God had to punish us. Those of you who were there then when all that happened, you remember. Does that happen would God do that to individuals? I knew a man who was extremely self-sufficient. And he thought, there is no problem that I can't resolve. You give me enough time, I can come up with an answer. If it takes it, and I just have to come up with enough money, he thought, I can solve it. If it means I get to obtain influence from over here and bring it to bear here, I can do that. There is no problem I can't handle. God had to say, oh, yes, there is. And that man had to end up losing a great deal, falling on his knees and finally saying, all right. That man even had to stop teaching the word of God for a while until God got him where that was changed in his life. And I know that to be true. So today we need to think about this example of what's going to happen to Israel. We need to start praying for our nation. We need to start praying for our church. And we need to start asking the Lord, if there is rebellion in my heart, if there is self-sufficiency in my heart, if there is a lack of humility in my heart, please point it out to me and give me the strength of your Holy Spirit to change it. So that when these things happen, you know, what does the world do? If you stand up and you say, now I'm just making stuff up. I don't want anybody to think what I'm talking about is reality. Uh, you know, he's standing up, and Brady is, and he's saying, this is wrong. Do you know that he's killed people, and he's stolen from people, and he's done this terrible thing? And that's what they always do. They, they try to destroy the man, not the message. It's called ad hominem. We need to be able to be in a position where our life can say, no, my life's been turned over to God. I don't do those things. That's not part of me. I'm here because I'm pursuing holiness. And let me tell you, this is God's judgment. Don't look at me. Look at God. He demands this. You're killing those babies. You're going to pay for it. 
You're allowing this sin to go rampant in your area. You're going to pay for it. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. But we need to be praying strongly to be able to stand up and have the courage to do that. The left has the courage to stand up and say unbelievable things. And we're intimidated. And we're shamed. Whatever other reason we have for not saying, wait a second. Carried on too long. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend together today. Opening your word. Understanding this part of Daniel. Help us to realize, Father, what is really going on here in our world around us. Help us to realize that you want us to know this is the time of unconcealing. This is the time for removing the seal. This is the time to know what's going to happen. Help us to see, Father, what can happen when we pray fervently and from a righteous base. How you will change people's hearts and change our country. Help us to realize that we've failed up to now to pray strongly like this. But help us to be there for you. Help us when you look for someone to pray that you don't say, I searched for a man among them to stand in the gap for me, but I found no one. May that never be said of us. Be with our pastor. Help him to be strong and courageous as he stands up as a prophet. And help him as he seeks to feed the people. Give him insight and wisdom. Help him in his study time to be able to spend the time to prepare properly and to bring the message to us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 